0: Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I am joined by sommelier Brittany Marsh, who is part of the team over at Heart and Crew, which is a wine shop down in Cincinnati, Ohio. Heart and Crew kind of first started out as more of a online platform and consulting platform. The physical wine shop itself has only been around for a couple of years now, but she joined back at the very beginning when Kevin Hart, who's kind of the founder, started really looking to materialize what he had kind of going from the consulting side of things into a physical wine shop and expanding and Brittany gets into all the detail, all the write-ups that they do. Uh, they have a couple hundred bottles uh, of wine. I think it's almost close to a thousand available at any given time too as well. They got the wine club and everything. So wanted to have her on somebody that we've kind of followed each other on Instagram for a little while. I have not had the chance to stop into their wine shop yet. Uh last time I was in Cincinnati I just ran out of time. So I wasn't able to get over there. David Jackman does the food menu over there too as well. And they've also done a handful of pop-ups. They've had Cody, um, who was one of the chefs over at Pleasantry before it closed. He's kind of done some stuff with David Jackman and Wildweed, and he's done his own pop-ups. I mean, he's kind of bounced around a little bit. He's uh, in the Cincinnati area. He's done some pop-up dinners there. Wildweed's done some stuff. So they've done some tasting events there too, as well. So it's a really cool place. It's just kind of another one of these great independent wine shops that has kind of their own focus. You don't have 10, 20, 20 wine shops that are all doing the same thing in Cincinnati. Everybody's different. It's like the bakery scene. Like everybody has a different specialty too as well. So it's just really awesome to see kind of things expand. And Cincinnati's got some great wine places, great bakeries, great restaurants. So it's a pretty underrated food city. And it's only an hour and a half from Columbus or so, you know, another hour and a half from Louisville maybe like an hour from Dayton. So it's really easy to get to if you're kind of in the general vicinity, even by car, like not uh, too difficult. And navigating around too is pretty easy too as well. Downtown within the OTR, Walnut Hills, um, it's all kind of situated relatively easily to move about. Make sure to follow Brittany on Instagram. She's got a couple different profiles at B underscore RIT. So B-E-E underscore R-I-T. That's kind of the one that she does with all the wine focused items. She also does uh Instagram account that is just kind of photography around Cincinnati. So that's at persistently roaming. Can also follow her wine tasting group that she has in the Cincinnati area. If you're into wine at Cincy Wine Crew, and that is Cincy with a Y. So C-I-N-C-Y, wine, and then crew, C-R-U, like Grand Crew for wine. And then also follow Heart and Crew. Uh, it's just at Heart and Crew. They post about all their different events that they have upcoming, different wines that they got in, uh, the wine club too as well. You can check out their website. For online ordering, which they'll ship wine to you and stop in, you know, whenever they're open to as well uh, and check out what they got going on. You can follow us on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mob. Check out our website as well, spoonmob.com. Profiles for all our different guests up there, photos, contact information, links to all the episodes, portal to writing questions, comments, feedback, all that is up on the website. And then make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform that you use. All new episodes drop straight in your feed, come out Thursdays. We do some mini-update episodes with returning guests. Those usually drop on a Tuesday. we got a couple of those upcoming, too, as well, so be on the lookout for those. You can also check out our YouTube channel if YouTube's kind of your preferred method to consume podcasts. We put all the episodes up there just a week after they debut on the podcast platforms. Just different metric systems, it's just easier to keep track that way for me. But without any further delays, here's my conversation with Somali Brittany Marsh, who you can find over at Heart & Crew in Cincinnati, Ohio. Cool. Thanks again for coming on the podcast and taking some time out of your day to jump on here and chat about your career and wine and everything. So I know you're over at Heart & Crew, which is a wine shop in Cincinnati. Cincinnati has a lot of independent wine shops, I think probably more on the way or it always seems like there's another one kind of popping up or somebody doing something pretty interesting down there. We have a handful here in Columbus. I think that's probably really just because there's no big box retailer anymore. I mean, Jungle Gyms, I guess, but I don't know, they only have two locations. So I wouldn't quantify them as like a big box retailer, like a total wine or something like that. But I want to get into kind of what you're doing at Heart and Crew.
1: I've actually been with Heart and Crew since 2019, like long before the bottle shop opened and the wine bar. And it started out as a side gig, because in this industry, a lot of people are doing multiple gigs at the same time. And at this juncture, I was uh, a sommelier and server at Boca, and I was working in the wine department at Party Source 13 hours a week. And then um, I was doing uh, some wine writing on the side. That was actually because uh, I had sustained an ankle injury and I couldn't work. I'd reached out to Kevin the owner about doing some writing because that could still like give me some work and wine writing really took off. When the shutdown happened, all the restaurants were closed and my time with Heart and Crew kept growing and growing. And currently it's my only gig and it's enough. Heart and Crew has been around um, for seven years at this point. Not a lot of people realize that how long the business has been going. But wine for me came through restaurants. I always had like a hospitality side of me. Like I love being around people. I love like translating, like food and beverage, and like talking to people and bringing an education aspect. So hospitality for me was a no brainer. Uh, it really started in coffee shops, being a barista, bartending, and when I started doing like restaurants, um, I was working for Hideki Harada at Kaze restaurant um, many years ago. Um, and that was like my first, not only management job, but first like wine buyer position. I worked with a woman, um, longtime Cincinnati SOM named Jordan Patton, who is not in the industry anymore, but she was a role model for me. This is at a time, and then there just weren't a lot of women in the Cincinnati wine scene. And just like seeing a person as a role model who was really intelligent and who could show me that, hey, you know, you can sell wine to people and still make it approachable. You don't have to be uh, like the quintessential stuffy psalm. Also, this disarming quality about you too, that was really inspiring to me. And I was like, I want to be like that. I dove headfirst into as many wine books as I could get my hands on. I started studying through the court. I took several exams and haven't looked back since. I've Got to work with a lot of talented chefs, like some of the best the city has to offer. Uh, I worked for Jean Robert, the late Jean Robert at Restaurant L. That that was a job that really um, I took a lot away from in, in regards to service and taking care of people. And I worked for Chase Blowers at Ethan English, Mediterranean sort of seafood restaurant. I worked for Boca for David Falk, and it was great to be there just surrounded by some of the city's best wine professionals. When I worked there, there were seven certified somms on staff. That's wild for uh for the city. And then the shutdown happened. That changed everything for everybody. But it really got to awaken like what I love doing, and I pivoted, stopped doing fine dining, and now I'm working at, in my opinion, the best wine bar in the city. And we have a ton of fun, uh, heart and crew.
0: Because you went to the University of Cincinnati, right? And I think majored in Spanish. Yeah. You wind up in restaurants and like you said before that kind of coffee shops, but where were you kind of headed with Spanish? You mentioned education. So was that teaching? Where were you kind of headed before restaurants and everything?
1: I really love language in general. um, And that really parallels into doing wine writing, which is something that I still do. So I was working at Kaze restaurant. I had taken a semester off to go do a a volunteer project. And I took a month off and went to Argentina. Uh, I had the time of my life, of course, I came back and like sort of was fueled with this direction that I was like, I'm in love with restaurants and hospitality. Like this is what I want my focus to be. So even though I still have like a love for language, it's just uh, I pivoted and just fell in love with uh, restaurants, food, wine and bringing people together. Spanish is still an interest to me. It's just, it was no longer a focus though.
0: When you come back kind of from your trip, you know, you start getting into restaurants. Like you said, you were working at Kaze for a long period of time, wine director there too, right? A couple other places too. Kind of through that timeline, did you always think that you were going to be in restaurants, like right up until the, you know, the pandemic happened, but you were kind of like, I'm always going to be in restaurants. This is kind of my path.
1: They call us uh, lifers, you know. Um, I knew this is where I want to be. And a lot of people will talk about, like, how they live and breathe, like, food and wine outside of work. I'm absolutely one of those people. But it doesn't feel like work because um, it's just, like, it's such a passion as well as work that it, it never feels like work, even if I'm going home and, like, reading a wine book or, like, reading a blog or something. It's just, we call it lifestyle.
0: What led to you... Kind of almost in a way taking a step back, you know, when you're a wine director, usually people kind of stay in that position. Maybe they become beverage director, GM somewhere in there, but there's always kind of a mix. But you kind of took a different path and didn't really stay in the wine director role and and went back to kind of working on the floor and stuff like that. And this was, I think, also around the time when you started doing examinations too. So was that you wanted more hands-on experience? Being on the floor, kind of thing, or was it just that was more interesting than doing all the other stuff that comes with being a wine director?
1: I think many people know that when they take on a manager position, it's more hours. I knew that for me, I wanted to spend more of my hours studying outside of work for these exams versus more times at work. And honestly, I've been in positions where I have power. I I know that that's not necessarily me. Where I want a position of power, it's just not my thing. Um, I'd much rather like be. I might be one to, like, educate staff, something like that. That like, that's where I love using um, the sort of knowledge as power sort of thing. I love using uh, education as a tool in hospitality, like teaching people at the table about wine. Um, That's a huge uh, passion for me. But I just found out that being in management as a role of power was just not something that really drew me in. At Heart & Crew, we're a team of seven people, like, including Kevin, the owner. I mean, we're super small and we talk about this often that we're all managers. Um, we all have our, our niche, uh, something we bring to the table. And it surprises people sometimes that I'm not necessarily like the tasting or a manager or something like that. And that's like perfectly fine with me.
0: So when you start getting into exams, think 2017, you passed the certified sommelier exam with CMS, the quartermaster sommeliers. So how did you kind of first find out about exams and what kind of made you want to kind of go down that path?
1: There was a period of time where um, I felt like as a woman to get noticed, I needed certifications. I decided that I wanted to get as many certifications under my belt as I could. And for me, like knowledge is power versus being in a role that has literal power. So I was studying for as many things as I could. I was studying for a SAPI certification. Um, I didn't end up taking it, but that's okay. I got the certified beer server I'm still looking into other wine certifications outside the Court of Master Soms. Like you may have heard of WSET and CSW. Those are still things I'm looking at. But I was really just motivated to be as one of the most knowledgeable people in the city as possible. That really, really motivated me.
0: When you take the exam, what was kind of the most challenging part for you? Was it tasting or theory or service?
1: Service. I love being in front of people and disarming people. So um, that was something that I felt was easy for me. Even if you're doing the dance during the exam where they're like firing questions away at you, I felt comfortable. I feel comfortable blind tasting, even if I get them wrong. My struggle was always theory. So like statistics, laws, those kind of things. So I didn't pass the exam on the first time. I took it again the next year and then I passed all three.
0: Was there a region within theory that was Something that you had to focus on extra, like everybody has that one region that just they love, but then there's also that one region that they hate. Like, was it Italy or was it a certain region of France that was just for whatever reason you always had to pay extra attention to?
1: Southern Hemisphere in general, and especially being in restaurants that's doing very heavy French and Italian. One, you don't get exposure to Southern Hemisphere wines because they're not as available And two, they're just, um, they're intangible because you're, it's hard to learn about them if you're not drinking them on a regular basis. Uh, another area is Bordeaux. How many months out of the year are you actually like drinking Bordeaux and enjoying it? It's just, um, Bordeaux for, for me is more of an occasion wine, like, and it's not something I purchase. So learning Bordeaux is, um, like learning the different villages and different wine laws, um, still something I'm learning, you know? We're always learning.
0: So you mentioned possibly kind of taking some other exams down the road. At that point, you kind of wind up stopping. Was that due to kind of some of the fallout of different scandals with the court that led to you kind of pushing pause on that? Or was there a different reason?
1: Actually, the shutdown also had to do with it. It was the shutdown. It was the cheating. It was the sexual assaults. All of those things happened at the same time. Um, I was supposed to take my advanced course, which is like part one of level three, the spring of 2020. Naturally, all the exams got canceled and I never really fought to uh, reschedule it. That was okay with me. And also uh, I had applied for a scholarship in 2020 and that scholarship essentially paid off my exam. And um, I was like, you know, I'm just, I'm just not in a hurry to sign up for this exam again. And yeah, all that sexual assault thing was happening in uh, 2020 as well. And it was part of the Me Too movement and a lot's happened since then, but I, I just didn't see myself going back to take that exam again.
0: So with that, there's a few different opinions on how to kind of approach it now where, you know, we've had a decent amount of women sommeliers on the podcast and he- I like to ask this question just to get their opinion, but you could say, you know, the organization did bad, want no part of it. There's some that say you have to be part of the organization to, you know, change, change from the inside. And then some others have kind of wait and see approach. Like, let's see if they make the change on their own. Maybe I'll come back. What kind of bucket do you kind of feel like you fall into out of those three?
1: I am more a bystander. Um, I would love for them to reform things, and they, they've been working on it. You may not know this, um, but there is a woman, um, Julie Theobald, who is a huge part of the, the CMS. Um, she lives in Cincinnati. She's reached out a couple times, and I've listened to her a couple times speak about the direction the court has been taking, and that is very important to me. I also come from a position that I run a local wine study group called Cincy Wine Crew. And I think having a position that is supportive of studies in general is important, especially because I believe they're changing. So we have a lot of people that go to this study group who are actively studying. One, I want to be supportive of something I believe in. I believe the CMS is changing. But two, I want to give people a place where they can feel okay that they're studying for a good cause.
0: Like you mentioned, you kind of work at Boca and at the time there was a bunch of people, certified Psalms on the floor. Was that kind of the reason why you wanted to work there? You know, for a lot of people, Boca is one of the top restaurants in Cincinnati, has been for a number of years. Was that kind of the reason why you reached out and wanted to go there? Was like, if this is one of the best places, like I want to be surrounded by kind of the best people and, and see what this is all about?
1: That's funny you say that. Um I never reached out. They reached out to me like more than once. And I was like, yeah, it's time. Like I'm going to work at the, at currently the best restaurant in the city. I want to work with the best team. I want to be, I want to go to work every day and like learn from the people that I'm pouring wine with on the floor. That was important for me. And I I felt that.
0: How did they find you? Was it somebody that worked there, knew you and kind of like recommended?
1: There was a woman named Lindsay. Um, uh, she had worked at Boca for several years and um, she had seen me work at my previous job kaze and like had got tried to get me to go work at Boga twice. It didn't work out the first time. It wasn't the right time, but then the second time they got she got me in. So
0: like at the same time I think you were also doing some wine sales at the party source, right? What all did that job entail? Was that strictly like doing wine sales for different events or what was that?
1: So it was a sales associate, like retail. And that was important for me because as you may know, I wasn't very heavy in like very classic, like French and Italian wine for a long time, which is amazing, but it's limiting. And I wanted to expand my knowledge and working at Party Source did that. So not only did I get to learn about big box wine and those in what the average consumer wants, I got my hands a little bit more on like Southern Hemisphere and wines I didn't get to see all the time. So, and producers that weren't available in Ohio either. But I worked for party source on a part-time level for almost four years.
0: So when you wind up joining Heart & Crew, I think it's like 2019 or so, what is the early iterations? My understanding is it's kind of like a concierge service almost is kind of how it started before the physical wine shop opened. Because the physical wine shop is only a year or two old. It's pretty young in terms of the actual length of time that Heart & Crew has been open.
1: A little background about Kevin to understand how this business got started. Um, Kevin was the beverage director for Boca Restaurant Group for many, many years, Um, really helped put a direction with the wine program. He also was a huge, major part in getting Winecraft going he worked for winecraft a local importer for many years and really got winecraft going and in the meantime was really forging these connections with local restaurants and bar programs because he was selling them wine when he left winecraft he started heart and crew in uh, 2015 he started a wine club right away um, and he was doing this concierge service like you said he was doing events like little pop-ups like he'd go to Washington Park and have like just have a bunch of wine open and pour for people he would sell retail at uh, the same day at the event but his whole direction has always been um, like the European classics like the small producers. And then he would do private things too, like private sales. He would get allocated wine in. He would have a client base where he would sell this wine uh, via email, et cetera. And then he would do a lot of consulting. He um, would write wine programs, like wrote wine lists for like Ghost Baby, things like that. Like back when they first opened, he would do staff educations all over the city. He also do cellar work. So he'd go to somebody's home, write, bin their cellar for them, organize their cellar sell wine for people who were like liquidating their cellar. Um, so he just had his hands in all these different things, things that he was passionate about and that he was knowledgeable in. So that's how we got off the ground with that. Uh, wine Club was really a focus for him. When I came along, I was writing blogs for his website. I would do these things called grower stories. I would do product writing for his website. So if you go on, on the website, there's no copy and paste. It's all custom writing we do in-house. And believe it or not, there's over 700 bottles on our website right now that all have custom writing. It's all done in-house. And it was really pivotal for me because I joined, um, I put more hours at Heart & Crew like right after the shutdown happened. Because in order for Kevin and Heart & Crew to survive, they had to do retail and deliver wine to people's stores. So there was a whole few months where we were just building this website to stay afloat. So I was doing like 15 hours a week for a while. there, just doing writing and then also social media to draw people to our website. That was a focus for a while. The tasting room um, came later. We had all this inventory and you're like, it's time to open a shop. We have several hundred bottles. So (laughs) and the right space uh, came along.
0: Before the shop opened, where was all the wine? Did you guys store it at like houses? Like everybody's house had like handful of boxes or like, how did that work?
1: Kevin has a home cellar. It was stored there. He had an LLC, of course, um, but that's where all the wine was stored.
0: So with your wine writing, because you mentioned you were doing that for a number of years too, and obviously still do it with kind of the custom bios of everything that's available. With kind of that being, I'm assuming more freelance probably to start out, how did that all kind of work? Was it get in contact with kind of publications and see, hey, here's an idea I have for a story? Or, or did they kind of reach out to you and like, hey, would you be interested in kind of writing something that fits in this kind of story? Like, how did that kind of all work?
1: We typically brainstorm as a team. So we have like two major directions with the writing, the blogs, we have grower stories, which is focused on one producer. And it's a deep dive of their journey, their story, and um, what their focus is on, why they're different, why they're special. And we have another, call them lifestyle blogs. So they can be more on a general topic, like Porto Blanc or something. We do um, blogs on um, food and wine pairing quite a bit. Like recently, we did one on red wine can go with seafood, that sort of thing. One's producer focused, the other ones we call lifestyle. Well, we always talk about this as a team, like if a producer just landed or there's an allocation of something, it's like, okay, it's time to write a blog about this. Recently, the team got together and we're like, you know, let's write a blog on conservas, tin fish, like we sell them. We did a whole blog on um, incorporating tin fish at home, like how to use them in recipes. And that wouldn't have happened if the team hadn't gotten together and put their heads together.
0: Now that you have the physical space, you do a bunch of different stuff. Uh, You have a small menu. Some of it's done by David and Lydia Jackman from Wild Weed. But I mean, you guys have done guest chef dinners, winemaker events, meet and greets, different tastings, special tastings, wine dinners, I think. What is your favorite part of all the kind of events that you guys do? Like, what's your favorite one to participate in?
1: It would probably be two different things. We do this thing called Baller Bottle Friday where we always pull the cork on something rare. And this happens every single Friday and we've never repeated a bottle, but there's a thrill that goes along with that. Like sometimes we're opening a champagne that's like 30 or 40 bucks a glass and there's this like sort of thrill and like that's an expensive glass pour, and like getting people behind it to to purchase it uh, and enjoy it, having them trust us at the same time. And it's like, it's wildly exciting. And meanwhile, there's like, R&B, hip-hop playing on the vinyl behind us while this is all happening. It's, like, it's such a cool energy um, to be a part of. The other thing is um, we'll do these these pouring events. Recently, we did the Rosé Soiree out on the patio. And you're just, like, pouring wine and telling stories for hours. And uh, it's, like, people... We'll come, they'll taste through like nine wines or however many we have open and you're just like taking them on this journey. For me, that's really cool. When we have these events, there's just like a certain energy in the space. They're ticketed events too. So like the last time we did this, there's two time slots. Um, uh, That's a really fun evening. And I get like emotionally exhausted after these because it's like, you're just like pouring so much passion into these things. So you're like physically and emotionally just invigorated.
0: Part of the byline of Heart & Crew, it says concierge styles service focused on selling artisanal wine. So what exactly is an artisanal wine for you guys? Like define that.
1: Uh, if you walk into our shop, we have an entire library of wine on the right side when you walk in. Our, our focus is European forward wines. So I would say 90% of those wines come from France, Italy, Germany, Spain. The other 10% Portugal, maybe. Um, But we do some West Coast wines too. So the West Coast wines that we do are European inspired. We're always about celebrating the small producers. That's always been a focus for Kevin. So you're not going to find these in a grocery store, right? These are really special farmers who are doing something small. Um, But we talk about farming a lot because these are not just winemakers. These are people who literally have their hands on the fruit and you're farming. So we talk about that quite a bit. And it's a focus for us. And to piggyback off of that, like everything else we do, whether it's Noble Rot magazines or the Cartelier de Luz corkscrews that we do, the olive oils that we sell, like these are all small production things that are like curated. That's a huge focus for us.
0: With there being so many kind of wine shops, I mean, Cincinnati's got a handful. We have some in Columbus. Dayton's got a a couple here or there. And then once you get across the border into Kentucky, it kind of becomes a little bit more of a... Feel like almost like a Wild West thing. Like, I mean, you got big box like places that are within an hour's drive, like just outside Louisville, stuff like that. So, what kind of makes Heart and Crew different than all the other surrounding wine shops? Like, you know, you mentioned that there's seven people, you guys are kind of focusing on small producers and kind of the old world style. But what kind of makes you guys different when you look at everybody else around you?
1: A huge thing of what we do and is a huge takeaway for me is, um, Storytelling—that's what we do. If I pour you a glass of wine and you want to know more about the wine, I'm going to tell you about the person that made this wine and their story, and what region they come from. Like right now, we're pouring uh, Chacolina by the glass, which, like, spritzy uh, wine from Basque country in Spain, and there's a whole story with that because if you go to that region, the bartenders will pour it from what's called the Basque high pour. They'll elevate the wine and pour it, you know. We just like love, this is what we tell people. Like there's a whole illustration involved when you're pouring wine and giving it to somebody. Th- there's no reason to compare us to other places. Like that's just what we do. Um, but stories are uh, front and center um, for us. So we love we uh, love talking about this other producer, uh, Elisabetta Fagioli. She's from uh, Montanitoli in Tuscany. But we have nicknamed her wine Grandma Juice because she's in her 80s and still making wine. Like these are things that we say whenever we bring wine to somebody, that's what we do.
0: With all this kind of storytelling that you guys do, I'm assuming there's a lot of research that goes on behind the scenes to, to do all that. As you mentioned with kind of the writing of, for each individual bottle that's available, how difficult and challenging is that where a lot of these producers are in a different language, possibly their website, right? Like half of, the champagne companies, it's, it's a French website and you can translate it and, and do that stuff through Google, but it's not exactly always a one-to-one like translation with some of the words. So how time consuming, how difficult is that to, to do some of this research on some of these places?
1: It takes some time. <laughs> And it's really important to me to have specs on wines we're pouring by the glass on our website because our website, yes, it's a business and we're a retail site, but also it's a learning pool for our entire team. You know, it's really nice for them to go into our glass wars and be able to research a bottle without having to go look for the producer website. Yeah, it's challenging. Um, there's some times where I've finished a day of writing and I'm like, oh my God, my brain is exhausted because I just like try to sift through like four different languages in the past few hours and trying to translate to the best of the winemaker. Like I DM winemakers on our Instagram all the time. I'm like, Hey, I can't find this. Can you help me? And then there's a language barrier as you're, you know, trying to talk to a Spanish winemaker and they're not quite sure what you mean. And it's a whole thing. Yeah. There's a lot of language, but it's fun.
0: So when like a a bottle is uh, sold out or Discontinued for the rest of the year. You know, there's no more when you guys take it off the website. Does it just kind of go in like an archive, and you still have like all the write up and stuff? So next year, as long as they come out with something, like you can kind of go back and reference it and not have to like redo the entire thing.
1: Exactly. That makes a a funny point though. Like um, vintage is so relevant. I mean, we're working with small producers all the time who they might change up completely, like what they did vintage to vintage on the same line. They might work with a different grower. They might change up the blend. The wine might look different in color. So we'll have to take another photo of the bottle. Um, But there's so much variation when you're working with small growers. So that writing might be there, but the writing might need to be updated. And that happens a lot.
0: So with kind of customers that come in, you know, not everybody's going to be super into wine, right? Like, probably, You know, you get people that come in that are just casual wine enthusiasts. You know, maybe they're just looking for something they don't even know what. How do you kind of approach a customer like that who maybe doesn't have super in-depth knowledge and kind of walk them through what they're kind of looking for?
1: This is my favorite part. Um, I love the the disarming part because for me, it's so fun because I went from going like fine dining and wearing a uniform work to working in a wine shop that's, you know, blaring uh d'angelo in the background um sometimes you need to play like five questions sometimes to figure out where somebody's at and it's really fun too to dial it back and go really simple with the questions like well do you want something cold or not cold that's really okay if somebody doesn't have the vocabulary because we just have fun the whole journey so we have a lot of wines by the glass and. We always have something that's lightly sweet. We always have bubbles. Um, We also, we usually have something that's full-bodied. So if somebody has a a niche that they like, we can find something for them. Um, But playing that five to 10 questions is really fun. And at the same time, sometimes I'll just feel like, do you want to do a glass of dealer's choice? Because some people don't want to make a decision and that's where you come in.
0: Is that the part of being a A that's the most fun for you?
1: Yeah. I love the, um, forging that relationship of hopefully trust. I mean, this is what I do. So I I hope that, you know, people trust us. They often do
0: with having as many available selections as you guys do at the shop there. Is there anything that you think or feel is underrated or lesser known, you know, whether it's a wine region or a grape varietal that you think deserves more attention. Like you wish people kind of knew about it more and like actually sought it out.
1: I'd say, uh, Italian whites is a, is a topic. Uh, a lot of people ask for like, you know, Pinot Grigio, it's very, very available, but it, Italy does hundreds of other white wines, getting somebody to try something new. And usually food pairing is a good topic for this. Like if I'm reaching a bottle of Greco from Campania off the shelf, Sometimes it's hard to talk about because, hey, they don't know what it is. That's okay. But I'm like, if you ever like go to the store and get some burrata and toast and olive oil, like that'll go so great with this wine. So sometimes I feel like I use food pairing as a way to sell something for them to like more easily imagine enjoying it. Um, So that's fun too. Spanish wine in general, people know Rioja, Ribera del Duero, because those are big full bodied reds that have longer been on the market and available it's really fun to bring these other wines that maybe they haven't heard of because they're so small but that spain in general is just so fun to talk about
0: how do you keep yourself up to date with everything i gotta imagine there's wine coming in different boxes stuff that you guys haven't had before some that you have stuff going out obviously with people you know coming in and buying stuff from the shop and wine clubs and all that stuff so How do you kind of like mentally keep track of it all and and like, oh, this is new. I got to like pay attention to this. And then it's like, wait, where did that thing go? That's gone. Okay. Like, how do you kind of organize all that in your head?
1: I think the, the team as a whole, we're all keep each other up to date. Pete, who is our tasting room manager. He is the one who's most in front of our sales reps and our sales reps know what we buy. They know what we are looking for. So when they come in with like a very curated set of wines, we'll often taste together. Or if I'm not there, Pete will like, let me know that he just picked up a wine and like, tell me about it or send me an article about the producer. So that's really fun. Generally speaking, it's like sort of our, it's our responsibility to, to research these wines. This is what we do. How can we sell them if we're not doing the the work, the upkeep? But that's the best part of like being a team in this is somebody else is going to bring something that's going to inspire you most likely. And so you're going to remember it better. Yeah, it is a lot of upkeep. I don't really ever think of it that way, but it really is. I mean, we have over 700 bottles on our website. That's no small feat. Can I tell you about every single one of them? Sure. Um, Yeah, but it's a huge memory bank going on up here.
0: You guys have a little food menu in the shop and everything. But when you guys kind of build out your little kind of by the glass list for people coming in. How do you approach it to put something on there that kind of fits with whatever the temperature is outside or something that you guys are excited about that you just tried that you want to share? Like how do you guys approach methodology of the little, you know, kind of by the glass portion of the menu there?
1: I think seasonality goes a long way here. Like during the winter months, David Jackman was making um, a cassoulet with uh, Toulouse sausage that he had made and. In- we're a huge proponent of what grows together, goes together. So cassoulet is a dish usually seen in like countryside, Southern France. So we wanted something to best represent that. And during the winter months, yeah, you you want a hearty red, like something with some some rusticity that'll go with that. So we were swapping up like Southern French reds there for a while. That was really fun. Um, seasonality goes a long way. Yes, we always have a chilled red by the glass when it's warm outside. Um, We're gonna be pouring Chacolina as long as it's warm outside. Um, We have a lot of fun with that. We also are in a position that we um, do markups for wine bottles based on our retail program. Like we're not running margins as a, a restaurant would. So often we're pouring allocated and extremely small production wines by the glass that you are not gonna see everywhere. Um, like one of our favorite producers, Eminate, like we've been pouring their Mencia by the glass and that wine is like very sought after in the wine world. And we can do that because we're doing these retail margins, not restaurant margins. When we get excited about something, like often we're pouring it by the glass because we wanna get it out there. So we wanna share the story on it.
0: So for you, what region is kind of the most exciting, like the one that you gravitate towards the most? Like everybody has that region. Usually it's kind of when they first started out. It's for whatever reason they fell in love with this place. Like, what is that one for you?
1: Uh, it's, it's changed over the years, naturally. Like, I got most excited about, like, the French classics, like Burgundy. Like, I could drink Burgundy every day and be very happy, white or red. I could drink Riesling every day and be very happy, and I could drink Chenin Blanc every day and be very happy. Um, But for me, it changed over time, and it's more so about the people. Um, I love celebrating like under the radar, like women winemakers who are coming from some small place and nobody's heard of them. Um, Like Felipe Pato, she's this producer in coastal Portugal, and she's making these crazy like champagne quality wines, but they're twenty bucks retail, which is crazy. Um, but I'm huge proponent of under the radar producers in regions. You're not going to hear a lot about. Um, I love, love that. Um, that's a focus for me.
0: So when you go out to dinner, you know, and there's a wine list there. Are you able to enjoy the experience or do you compulsively check that wine and bottle list when you sit down and, and see what they have?
1: It depends if I'm going out with people. If I'm going out with people, I try to research it ahead of time. That way I'm not like spending you know, way too long looking at the wine list and I like, can enjoy the company. If I'm out to dinner by myself and having dinner at the bar, which happens pretty frequently, I'm going to take my time and look at the whole wine list.
0: With working in a wine shop, your interactions with different people that come in, do you think still a majority of the public is kind of blinded by the wine label like? Like they're looking for that kind of famous producer or do you think it's changed and people are a little bit more open to things that they don't necessarily know about or heard about before?
1: I think it goes both ways. Um, people are comfortable. They like gravitating towards something they've had before, whether it's something they had at a natural wine shop or it's something that they got at Kroger. Like either way, like people are comfortable. In a way, it's up to us to present them other options of things that we love But at the same time, we have so many people who come in and I don't take this for granted, but they are trusting and they're like, I want, I really like this producer last time. I liked this bottle. What do you recommend next? And the people are just wildly open.
0: Are there any trends, either good or bad, that you see emerging in the wine industry?
1: I think this is all subjective, but this is a personal question. I'm going to answer it that way. When it comes to wine faults, this is, uh, this can be a touchy subject uh, at work because everybody has different palates. My palate is more classically trained. Tasting natty wine for me is like, there; it's kind of a novelty experience for me. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I guess I enjoyed that. Do I want a whole glass of it? Maybe not. And I, I always love trying new things. But at the end of the day, if I'm going to spend my money on something, I'm probably going to go to back to something that's a little bit more classic in style. And then talking about wine faults, Pete, uh, who I spend a lot of time around at Heart & Crew, we have wildly different palettes. He loves like natural, like very funky, aggressive sort of styles of natural wine. And when we taste them together, we just have wildly different palettes. but we can still like give like constructive criticism about the wines. It's good to taste around other people because you're like, okay, well, I know that this wine is not complete shit, but, I also respect your opinion. Yeah, tasting together is always fun. It's uh we rub off on each other a lot, of course.
0: Do you think there's another or a next wine region, you know, to explode that people should kind of be paying attention to, or maybe you guys are already as well. I mean, we've had people kind of suggest, you know, Mexico, the upper kind of peninsula of Michigan, certain areas within the Pacific Northwest that were overshadowed by like Pinot Noir, larger producers and Stuff like that. Is there something that you kind of see that you're like that could be really cool in like five years if everything kind of goes right?
1: I have two answers for that for for Heart and Crew um, and people in the natural wine world in general. Um, I think people need to pay more attention to Portugal. Um, our owner Kevin just got back from Lisbon and he was very inspired by his travels. Um, not to mention the quality and the value that's coming out of Portugal right now is crazy. Um, so people definitely need to be paying attention to that. Um, it's funny you mentioned Michigan because I was actually in Michigan wine country for the first time recently, and I was wildly inspired. I was reading an article, um, on food and wine website, and it was about, a basically road trips to wine country that weren't necessarily California. And it was talking about like all these places in Michigan. And I had this realization that I could drive there from here. And so I just... I took a road trip based around going to Michigan, and I went up to uh, Traverse City. I visited several wineries, um, and I did not know that Michigan was making that kind of wine. And I wouldn't know that because hardly anybody is selling it here. They're only selling the sweet stuff, and Michigan makes a lot of other styles of wine. So I'm just kind of like, somebody needs to bring more Michigan wine out here that's like really good quality to sell. I brought a bunch back with me, and I think Michigan is very up-and-coming. Uh, I visited a producer, I think he's in Benton, Michigan. Uh, he's been making wine since the 80s, and he was the first person to plant Cabernet Sauvignon in Michigan at a time when everybody was only doing sweet stuff because he saw the potential. And he was doing dry Riesling, and people thought he was crazy. And he's like, I'm doing it anyway. And this uh, silver haired guy named uh, Jim, but he was fantastic. And I was inspired and got a lot of his wine to bring back. Michigan.
0: Does more wine not come from Michigan and flow into Ohio? Is it just interstate kind of commerce laws or, you know, we're a neighboring state? Like, so how does it not make its way down here?
1: Um, I think naturally people in the Midwest uh, gravitate towards sweet wine as far as is what's made locally. Like even Kentucky makes a lot of sweet wine. Ohio River Valley makes a lot of sweet wine. Um, And I think people who are buying locally, that that is their palate that's what's available and yeah there's a state-to-state issue because like somebody has to, some distributor has to pick them up right and really nobody has like even if you go to party Source right now like it's all sweet and they have the biggest selection of michigan wine so locally there is a producer up there new sellers neu i don't know if you've heard of them but this guy's making like natural wines done in european style and the wines are delicious um but they're not, I don't think they're available in Kentucky yet. They're only on this side.
0: Yeah, it just seems like na- that should be a natural flow of Michigan wine to the surrounding states, uh, you would think. But yeah, like you said, I guess it's about distribution and somebody being willing to take a chance and see how that goes and kind of kick something else out of their portfolio or whatever. So you've been in Cincinnati for a long time, you know, food and restaurant industry, now in the wine shop there. Since you've been involved in kind of hospitality, how has Cincinnati changed and what do you think still needs to change, if anything? You know, kind of where do you see it headed?
1: Community is a huge topic of conversation to me. Um, I wish that people would not be limited like, to hanging out with their own teams or own neighborhoods and I'll be the first to say that like, I wish that I could be out there, like getting to know um, other Psalms in the city that I haven't connected with. I think these people are really cool from far away. Yeah, I followed them on Instagram, but I wish there was actually like a personal bond where we could go hang out. And it's so easy to just uh, be limited to like hanging out with your own staff or your own coworkers after work. Um, I wish people were more open to connecting that way. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, I run a local wine study group called Cincy Wine Crew. Um, I wish I could get more people to come to that. Um, Like, I'm very grateful with the turnout we've been doing so far. Um, We've been doing this wine group for a couple of years now. It started, like, right after the shutdown. Um, But I want more people to, like, take that chance, that, like, little risk and come to these things because they're not always that super nerdy. Um, And it's just a way to meet somebody new. Um, that's very important to me. Yeah, I wish sometimes that that this wine community wasn't clicky at, uh, at the end of the day.
0: What's uh, next for you professionally? Anything on the horizon? I know you mentioned possibly getting back into some sort of exam studying and everything, but you're obviously pretty busy with doing a bunch of write ups and stuff for all the wine that's flowing in and out of Heart and Crew there. So, but what do you have going on? Anything on the horizon
1: within Heart and Crew? I do quite a bit of other things like. Um, I spearhead our Sunday schools, our wine classes that happen on Sunday. Um, That is a huge undertaking for me. We decide on these wine classes as a team. The thing is, it's my baby. It's, uh, I love wine education. So we're always trying to be better about that. That's always evolving. The classes started pretty broad, sort of like entry-level classes. And now they've headed to a direction where they're a little bit more focused um, we just did one called The New Spain um, that went really, really well. And that's a pretty focused class. And then other things outside of Heart and Crew, I'm really just trying to build some wine community in the city. I think it's really important, very important for me for wine people to meet each other. Like my favorite thing is when people from our wine group will come into Heart and Crew separately and then they'll see one another and then like sit down to with each other and like hang out and drink together. Like that's the best thing. Yeah, community is very important to me. Um, that's part of why I like I utilize social media so much. I love like getting the word out there about our wine group via social media. I love like calling local establishments out. Like when I go to Finley Market, I will be the first one to take a picture of something and like talk about the tomatoes at ETC Produce and how great they are. Very big uh, advocator for community. I have a couple friends in. Uh, Black friends in this community who are really working towards getting like uh, Black women in wine off the ground. And um, maybe you've heard of Black Wine Fest, but that was like a local thing in Cincinnati a couple months ago that went really well. It's really nice to see my friends like working in this direction to like make sure Black people are represented. And that's been really cool for me to watch from afar that my friends are doing these really cool things. I would, yeah, community in general, huge focus.
0: So, this next question comes from David Nilson, who's a previous guest on the podcast. Uh, he's an advanced uh, Cicerone, also hosts a uh, podcast, Being a Barstool, that's focused on Being a Bar Chocolate and beer and pairing the two together, and also has a magazine that he's publishing too. So, he left behind a question for you. If you found out tomorrow your current career was no longer viable, cease to exist. What would you pivot to?
1: Yeah, I would probably dive first into uh, having a food and cooking blog. Um, I'd probably write some cookbooks and probably embrace writing a lot more. Um, I have a dream that I would love to publish some books regarding food writing. I love hearing people's stories about like their food memories as a child. Or I have a lot of uh, food writing books. They really inspire me. So probably be a couple different directions for me.
0: What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything.
1: What is an important food memory to you, positive or negative?
0: Next question after that comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, "What's one woman-owned or woman-made wine that you'd recommend?"
1: This is a double-edged sword because uh, a lot of the women winemakers that I'm like I really love are usually small production and hard to get a hold of. Um, I. I have to recommend two here, just because I have a very personal connection with one of them. Um, in 2019, I did Harvest in Barolo in Italy, and I worked for a woman named Chiara Boskis. Uh, she's winemaker for E. Um, She makes Barolo, and I quickly realized like she is one of the best winemakers in Italy right now. Um, in, she's in her 60s and making world-class Nebbiolo in the foothills of the Alps and I was very blessed to work with her Mm -hmm. and at the same time her wines are hard to get a hold of but they're available. Yeah she makes uh, Longa Nebbiolo, Barbera, Dolcetto and Barolo and her wines are consistently like written up. They get the uh, Tre Bicari which is uh, if you go to a wine list in uh, Italy and you see like the the, uh, the little red wine glasses next to the wine, that's like a, it's a, a trademark or like a symbol of very, very, very good quality and highly rated, at least in the Italian wine scene. And I'd actually have to go back to that winemaker I was talking about earlier, Felipe Pato. She's from uh, beirada Portugal, and she's making like these crazy quality wines that remind me of Burgundy, but they're from Portugal and the value is crazy. Um I met her at the Spernic Wine Show last year, and um, she's wildly uh, inspiring to me.
0: So, we got a handful of questions left. These we ask to uh, every psalm or wine professional that comes on the podcast. So, nice to compare and contrast across all the episodes for the listeners. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far, looking back on it?
1: Uh, my boss, Kevin, took a chance on me to do something wine writing and you know, started out working four hours a month for him and then all of a sudden um I have the privilege to be able to work under him and learn from him on a daily basis, but also still like represent heart and crew like in the tasting room and in my writing, etc. Um yeah, without a doubt, Kevin's the Kevin's the biggest mentor.
0: What is your desert island wine? Riesling. Any specific one or just
1: it would be a uh, color limestone Riesling. It's an off-dry Riesling from Rheinhessen in Germany. And I have to be honest, like I sometimes like a little bit of sugar in my wines. That Riesling is crazy delicious. I could drink it every day.
0: Place you'd recommend that isn't your own. So you guys have some food. So I usually say, you know, restaurant, you'd recommend that isn't your own scenario. I usually give person gets stuck at the airport, flight canceled, you know, they're stuck overnight. They reach out to you. Hey, where should we go eat? You kind of point them in this direction. You guys are closed, so they can't come to you.
1: I fall in love with this restaurant every time I go to it again, but it's a Meet Us by Jose Salazar. I've been there in like several family situations, and it's really fun to watch my family. Who a little, some of them are a little limiting in like what they think they like eating. And every time we go there, it just like surpasses their expectations. Like I got my family to try octopus when we were there. I love that place and I think it's like symbolic of what it's named after. It's named after his grandma. I love being there and just sharing all these small plates. It's not like you go there and you order one thing for yourself. It's um, it's an interactive meal. I love the sharing aspect. Uh, that restaurant's very important to me.
0: Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurants, a place you've never traveled to, you still want to visit, and then also a restaurant that you haven't eaten at, but you still want to get to one day.
1: I've been meaning to make it over to Conservas in uh, Ludlow, Kentucky. They're a Spanish restaurant that focus on like uh, coastal. They obviously do Conservas, their Tin Fish and they have an amazing wine program and Sherry that nobody's doing in this city. I've been meaning to make it over there but it's one of those situations where I work whenever they're open. So it's been on my list for a while. Places to visit, uh, I'm obsessed with Sicily in general and the food culture. I need to make it there
0: very soon. Back when you were working in restaurants, what was the craziest thing you saw happen?
1: When I was working at Kaze restaurant, this is like 2015 or so, and Vine Street was still like up and coming a little bit, like regaining its uh, like former glory. Uh, we had a valet right outside of the restaurant and um, there was a shooting that had happened where there was a drive by and somebody had shot at the cars that were parked in the valet and it's like daylight. And the people who own the car were dining on the other side of the window and saw the whole thing happen. And when that happened, there was like an exodus of everybody in the dining room, like leaving. And I was managing that day. That was a, uh, I would never want to be in that situation ever again. Just managing the chaos of everything that was happening at that, in that moment. And meanwhile, out on the patio, there's a, uh, there was a fenced beer garden and, um, the people who were out there, it was a private party and there was a lot of locals, like locals to downtown on the patio and they didn't even react. They're just like, Oh, it's another day in the neighborhood.
0: Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything, whether it's candy, fast food, some sort of chips or something that you know is pretty unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself.
1: I'm going to quote Julia child on this. Um, when she was asked her, uh, her guilty pleasure, um, she said she has no guilt I'm gonna take her up on that um, pleasures. Sure, I, I don't think I have any guilt either. Mine would probably be um, like anything creamy, rich, decadent sort of things. Um, I uh, burrata, like mozzarella, buffalo mozzarella. Can't get enough. I'm probably gonna eat some after this, actually. So
0: wine recommendations. So we broke it into four categories. It's zero to twenty dollars a bottle, zero to fifty zero to hundred, and then over a hundred, no limit. Three of the four, if they're all under $20 and those are the three that you want to recommend for, you know, each of those categories you can. So there's no, you know, you don't have to be uh, close to the kind of the maximum number, but you know, this is for kind of people that are, you know, drinking wine that are interested, but maybe don't know what they don't know yet kind of thing. So these are, you know, what you would recommend kind of point them to. So we'll start off with uh, zero to $20 a bottle. What would you kind of recommend for kind of the the novice wine drinker starting to kind of get into things?
1: I would say uh, I've talked with a lot of people over the years that are starting from the level of barefoot. And I say it's a level because there's a huge quality. I'm not here to hate on barefoot. Somebody out there is drinking barefoot and they're having the time of their life. But there is a quality thing here that you can easily go to something better quality that is not that. And I would say Moscato Dosti from Italy, like delicious and fizzy and sweet. And they're always, almost always under 20 bucks. Um, I would say Italian's got a lot to offer because here I am recommending another Italian wine. Chianti Classico or just Chianti in general. Food friendly, something you can even like have out on a patio with a slight chill on it. Like and who doesn't like lasagna and pizza? Like uh, those are two things that are like great food pairings with a uh, Chianti. And do you say three or four bottles that I should recommend?
0: Right, next category would be zero to a hundred.
1: I think everybody um, needs to try a grower champagne somewhere in their lifetime. So grower champagne would be the way to go, and it's like trying a small production champagne versus a Veuve Clicquot. Nothing wrong with both Clicquot, but it's everywhere, um, and it's nice to try something from somebody that you don't get to see everywhere. And somebody small. More specifically, going to call out like La Harrit They are the first champagne producer that I visited when I was in France um, several years ago, and they have grower champagne that's cheaper than both Clicquot. Their uh, Brut Nature is on our shelf at uh, sixty bucks right now. So,
0: and then over a hundred, you know, no real limit.
1: I think it's important to go like classic here because doing something non-classic there's it's harder to sell that to somebody who is really trying to enjoy something. If you're going to spend that much money on something, it should be something you enjoy, not for like a novelty, at least in my opinion. Um, I would say red burgundy, red burgundy like brings me so much pleasure, especially if I'm going to spend that much money on it. When you talk about burgundy, you talk about producers, um, not necessarily just like the village or the style. and. When you talk about Burgundy, it's, like, really cool to, like, talk about the story of that producer. I have a favorite producer, uh, Domaine Darlot. It's, like, D-apostrophe-A-R-L-O-T, a a woman winemaker from Nunez-Saint-Georges. But she is hands down, like, one of my most favorite wines I've ever had. Really, really pretty wines.
0: What is one book focused on beverage that you think everyone should read?
1: Oh, my God. I can't remember what it's called right now. Um, I've read it so many times that the front cover is not there anymore. <laughs> it's a book that presents um, all the different styles of alcohol by chapter, and will give them like a history on each of them. Like it'll dive into Port and talk about how Port was like, made, its, um, made it big like all over the world by like traveling via ships. But it's just like, it makes alcohol like really fun and approachable and, you know, hilarious. Uh, I just love that they uh, present everything that way. I can't remember what it's called for the life of me, probably because the front cover's missing. God, if I rediscover that book, I will let you know the title.
0: I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. Uh, If you were, is there a moment episode scene that still stands out to you about him? If you weren't, is there somebody else who was on TV? Julia Child, Bobby Flay, Emeril, just somebody you kind of gravitated towards, always kind of paid attention to, you know, when you were coming up through your hospitality career?
1: Uh, Anthony Bourdain is actually a major inspiration to me, Um, but it's not just the cooking, it's the getting to know people through food intimately. And um, he was actually part of a reason I really got into writing in general, like just his his way of sharing stories and deep personal connections with people. Um, But I absolutely loved the episode where he went to Sicily and a nonna invited him in Um, she like fried these really fresh sardines up in a skillet with garlic and chili flake and olive oil and then there's a moment where they're out on the on a boat like getting an octopus and um, you see Anthony using a baseball bat to uh, tenderize the octopus on a beach and (laughs) I was like oh my god what is this Sicilian like cuisine like why do I not know about this and I'm a seafood junkie and That actually caused me to do some really, really culture and cooking, and I'm obsessed. Um, So he is a huge inspiration in many ways for
0: me. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything.
1: You know, there's a few places. So sure, Heart and Crew. Um, My main Instagram account where I'm drinking and eating is uh, Rit, which is how you found me. Um, I have another side one um, that is more for like my urban exploring and hiking, and that's called Persistently Roaming, purely about just like nature and what's surrounding me. And then Cincy Wine Crew is also uh, another Instagram handle.
0: And Heart and Crew uh, open Tuesday through Saturday, 2 to 10. I think Sunday's 2 to 8. You guys can stop in. You guys got food there too as well, and always some sort of event going on too. So have not had the pleasure of stopping in yet, uh, just ran out of time last time I was in Cincinnati. I had to get back up here to Columbus, but yeah, it's at the top of the list and looking forward to coming in and and seeing the six to seven hundred selections available and and getting some wine and and some snacks and having a good just uh sitting down and just having a good experience but it looks like a really cool place. I mean, you guys do a lot of different stuff, a lot of different events and everything. So it's something that people should check out if, whenever they're in Cincinnati, if they don't live there and they're just visiting. It's an hour and a half from Columbus. It's like an hour from Dayton, hour from Louisville. So the excuse to to not get there is few and far between. But um, I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story and your experiences. And we'll be seeing you soon at uh, Heart and Crew when we get to stop in. Thanks for having me. Big thanks again to Brittany for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of her day to jump on, chat about her career, wine, Cincinnati, all that kind of good stuff. So uh, super fun to connect with her. Somebody we've been kind of following each other on Instagram and can't wait to get in and check the wine shop out, Heart and Crew, um, for myself and see everything they got going on there. I always get envy just because Cincinnati, like, Martin Crew, uh, Iris Reed, they're always doing these kind of cool pop-up dinners, you know, and pop-up events and stuff. And it's just kind of usually, you know, sometimes it's during the week, can't really get to everything like that. So always kind of get uh, jealousy from afar, seeing all these kind of cool events happening. We have some stuff going on here in Columbus too as well, but it just seems like there's more of a pop-up community, kind of random community. Well, just cool shit will just happen uh, out of kind of thin air and materialize down in Cincinnati. So we always get to kind of live vicariously through some of the Instagram feeds, which is always fun. But again, follow her on Instagram. A couple different places you can follow what she's got going on. At B is her primary account on Instagram, kind of where she posts all the wine updates and and wine photos and everything like that. At Persistently Roaming uh, is where she's doing the photography around Cincinnati. So a bunch of different cool. Photos that she's taken, Uh, I'm always a fan of any photography accounts uh, that we get to follow. It's just kind of something that I'm into. But at Cincy Wine Crew, Cincy with a Y, Crew, C-R-U, that is kind of her wine tasting group that she's founded. And they always have different events. They popped up at Natty Wine Fest uh, that they had uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe like a month or two ago. I think it was back uh, early July is when that went down. It was right at the same weekend as the Columbus one, and they always have different stuff going on. And then also follow the wine shop at Heart and Crew. And is spelled out in Crew, C-R-U, for that account, too, as well. Type those in to the search bar. It'll come up. Uh, It'll be one of the first results uh, if you think you're spelling it wrong or something like that. Follow us on Instagram, too, as well, at Spoon Mob. We're on all the other social media platforms. Primarily use Instagram still the most. Don't really do much with Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. TikTok will throw uh, just a quick, you know, up episode update up there. We have the YouTube channel you can subscribe to as well on all the different podcast platforms. So, whichever one you prefer, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music. Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, if you have a Samsung device, I think that comes uh, installed. But you can find us on all that stuff. So make sure you follow the podcast there. All new episodes will drop straight into your feed so you won't miss any. New episodes drop on Thursdays. Mini updates come out on Tuesdays. Appreciate everybody who's been listening. Appreciate everybody who's been writing in. Awesome to see the feedback kind of continue through either uh, the Instagram DMs or email or through the contact portal on the website. So keep that stuff coming. Always great to see If you wind up at any of these establishments that we featured on the podcast, make sure to let them know that you heard about them through the Spoon Mob podcast. It always helps spread the word and lets the businesses know that, you know, them spending their time coming on the podcast was worthwhile. It's reaching the people that they want to reach. And, uh, you know, that's one way we kind of support our previous guests and upcoming guests, too, as well along with sharing whatever new events that they got going on on Instagram too as well. We try and reshare as much of that stuff as we can when it comes out and when we see it. But there's just a lot of different a uh, lot of different things uh, on Instagram, so sometimes uh, we might miss a thing or two, but yeah, try and support everybody as much as we can. Appreciate everybody who's been, you know, listening, um, helping spread the word, continue to do so. If you're new, relatively new, welcome. I uh, hope you guys have been enjoying what we got going on. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support, and we will talk to you guys next week.